Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. See, I have taken England with both my hands. This quote is attributed to William the Conqueror, or William I, as he stepped out of his ship and fell onto the sand and to the shores of England on the 28th of September in 1066. William the Conqueror, who makes much of England, depending on who you read, whether it's a mess or a good thing. It's a terrible year um, in, in our history, 1066. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. William the First. He's known as this conqueror. He he comes from Normandy. He comes and he he radically um, uh, takes uh, quite a, a bit of territory in England in a very short amount of time. Uh, and in the process, uh, he introduces some things that does impact church history. Because some of our listeners may be saying, why are we talking about William I on this week in church history? But I think there's a story for us to tell here. Yeah, I mean, the thing about William is he's promised the throne of England. It's the 11th century. The, the king at the time is Edward the Confessor, uh, remembered as a, as a very godly man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he promises the throne succession to a, a very distant relative, um, the Duke of Normandy. And uh, that's a, a real cause for concern for uh, nobles in England mm-hmm. uh, who believe that um, the next king should be um, English. Right. And, and certainly there are individuals there, including Harold, who believe that they should be the rightful king of England. And the uh, thing about William is that... Um, he he's very committed to the idea that he shouldn't just be the Duke of Normandy, but he should be the King of England too, and that promise was made. Well, and committed might be underselling it just a little bit. <laughs> he he was passionate about doing this, and when uh, Harold tried to uh, assert his rights, he he put that away immediately. Well, again, the the story is incredible. Um, you know, it's 1066. Um, the Vikings keep invading England in the north. Um, Harold um, believes that he should be the rightful king. And Edward dies. There is an invasion in Yorkshire by the Vikings. Harold and his army um, are expecting William to invade. And so they're scattered around the south coast of England waiting for this Norman invasion. And, and of course, the Normans are not really French. They're Vikings who've settled in that part of France, um, very warlike, and uh, succeeding generations have simply become the Normans. And, and they're at war as much with France as anywhere else. Uh, Harold takes his army north to Yorkshire. There's a great battle at, at Stamford Bridge. Um, Harold wins the battle um, and, uh, and then hears that William took advantage 
of the army not being in the south and he's invaded um, at that point. Now, William had, you know, taken his time. He was a man of great patience. He gathered an incredible um, invasion force. Uh, he had 600 ships to transport his army to England. Incredible cavalry, maybe 3,000 um, of them and uh, thousands of additional soldiers. And he lands on the beach, um, um, not, you know, with great nobility, but as we've heard, <laughs> uh, pretty ignominious. Um, but uh, he, he's a ruthless leader. And um, Harold has to march his army south. Um, they cover an incredible distance. It's like 30 miles a day after they've just had an incredible battle with the Vikings. We don't even know where the battle with William took place. Uh, it's called the Battle of Hastings, but uh, it didn't take place in Hastings. Uh, it probably happened in uh, uh, the place called Battle. So it was actually the Battle of Battle, which seems a bit kind of awkward. Um, it's sometimes called the Battle of Senlac. Uh, I don't believe we've even discovered the actual battlefield to this day. Right. Uh, you can pay a fee, I think, to the National Trust maybe, and, and go uh, across what they say is the battlefield. Um, but uh, I think most people, sane historians don't believe that's the actual battlefield because they've found very little by the way of archaeology. So I actually believe it's still to be discovered. I think why we remember William um, is because, you know, he wins the battle and, and then makes incredible changes to England and to its church. Mm -hmm. and, and those changes are really still with us today. And if William had lost, uh, the whole history uh, of the world, really, I think would have been different. England was Anglo-Saxon. Um, that will be uh, eradicated, and you'll have a Norman society and basically a Norman church because of that. He'll build castles everywhere. He'll appoint nobles and bishops uh, to control. He, he'll almost be back in, in Normandy much more than he will in England. He doesn't speak English. Um, no kings for 300 years will speak English from this point on, including Edward Longshanks and, and Richard the Lionheart, which seems incredibly wrong um, <laughs> that Richard doesn't even speak English when he's seen as this kind of great hero. Um, but William is ruthless and, and has a, a clear idea of what he wants to achieve. All right. So since this podcast is This Week in Church History, we definitely want to be able to talk about then what difference does this make for the church? And I think this is the connection point, the bridge that we want people to understand how uh, God even uses these shifting political circumstances. You may have studied um, the whole thing with William in, in, in elementary school or in, in high school or in your college history classes. 
it, it was so incredibly significant. Some, some historians have said it is some of the one of the most significant uh, events, really, uh, of the period uh, in terms of how many changes were brought about. But let's focus in on those changes specifically to the church. Um, he he is uh, endorsed uh, and his reign is endorsed by the papacy during that time, which is uh, an important thing to recognize and understand. That's not as important, though, as the way that he puts in a new Archbishop of Canterbury, which would be Lanfranc, and the, what begins to happen there. Yeah, I mean, William um, has clear ideas about how you govern and, and then force your will um, on a people. And so he's going to change so much about how things are organized and, and how people um, worship. So you're going to, I mean, so many changes. Uh, you're going to have these great Norman cathedrals will be built. Um, incredible spaces where people will be overawed at the sense of, of the majesty and everything within the church. So in, in a similar way, um, there may be a reflection between uh, the king now who reigns England and, and the majesty of God in these cathedrals. Um, William claims that he has authority over every church in every region that he rules. He will um, oust all the English-born bishops and abbots and priors. He will replace them with Normans um, so that they'll be more loyal, one mm. suspects. Um, and, and he will install a new archbishop, yes, Lonfranc. And, and Lonfranc's rules for the church uh, will become the law of the church in England. Right. And, and William will work very closely with this new archbishop and he will organize the church and, and he will use uh, English precedents. Um, Lonfranc has no problem with some of them even being forged. And, and the whole structure of the church will be changed. Um, you have two archbishops in England, which was really kind of unusual. You have an archbishop in York, and you have one in Canterbury. And, and William prefers much more to deal with just one leader of the church. He's the head, he believes, and the archbishop is the one who puts the king's policies into operation. Well, it's more difficult if you've got two. So he enables Lonfranc to bring the Archbishopric of York under the auspices and authority of Canterbury as it still is today. And, and bishops across the country uh, become part of the feudal military culture. Mm-hmm. So now you have you know, an incredible union of church and state. Um, the state, the king, really is controlling really every aspect of, of what the church is. And, and each bishop is allowed to keep a small army. And, and 
they are required to send those troops uh, to support William. So it's a million miles from the simple gospel and Mm -hmm. and the preaching of Christ. It's a union of force, really, both in church and state. It's this idea that uh, that William recognizes that if he can control uh, the the church itself and sees himself as the head of the church, then there are going to be more opportunities for him to not only recruit military, as you've said, by allowing these bishops to have their own militaries, but then also to be able to uh, advance his own cause and aim through the church uh, to people who might be resistant. Uh, towards us now, when we think through you know great um, bishops and archbishops uh, in the history of the church, there are very few that come close to uh, really the the gravitas of Anselm. How does Anselm get tied into this story when we talk about William the Conqueror, the 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 Norman invasion, all of these pieces? We we go from Lanfranc to as 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 archbishop to to this in this centralized understanding of the church of england with one archbishop over the whole church and then we get anselm yeah anselm you know he's a a a, a young he's a teenager and um, who wants to enter the church uh, he he wants a life uh, in a monastery that kind of idea his father and wants him to go into politics. And um, he he is recognized even as a even at a young age as as having a great mind, as as thinking through issues. Mm. And his father believes that there's a great future for him as an orator and a, as a thinker and speaker within uh, government. Uh, but Anselm uh, really wants to go into the church in some way. And and he prays to become ill, uh, so that he can go into the local abbey. And um, he 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 reasons that if he becomes ill and is in danger of death, then the abbot would would have to let him in, even against his father's wishes. Uh, he does become seriously ill, but he still refused permission. And so what Anselm will do is he will spend a number of years, you know, traveling through Europe and learning and and reading and, and, and basically stretching his mind. And I think that's a very formative and important um, period in Anselm's life. And, and he settles, um, of all places, at Beck in Normandy. And, and it's this same period of time. He, he wants to study under Lanfranc. Uh, he's a renowned scholar. He's there at Beck. And, and Anselm believes that he can have space and time uh, to think and to reason and to grow, basically. Now, after three years of being there, uh, Lanfranc moves. And, and he's taken by William to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. So this young man, this young thinker, Anselm, becomes his replacement at Beck. A- and uh, he accomplishes even great things there. Um, 
including making statements and reasoned arguments first, really, about the existence of God. Right. This Bristol game. Um, and, and, you know, makes this statement that, you know, God uh, is that which nothing greater can be thought of. So, you know, if we can think of a God, God must exist. He's greater than one who is merely an idea. And so Anselm really, you know, is going down this road now of, of using reason in the service of faith. Um, I believe, he says, in order to understand. And again, it's this idea that your mind, your reason has been given to you by God and, and should be used in the service of understanding what God has revealed. It doesn't replace faith, but it's used in the service of faith. Well, and let you know, this this is in essence how we talk in in my church history classes, this is the birth of scholasticism, right? This is this is where we're eventually going to see move in such a way that that paves the path for the Reformation. Uh, we're going to to get to this this understanding um, that enables us to to see really the the birth of the Reformation. So so to me, it's it's kind of odd seeing this uh, William the First. He's conquering all of these things, and yet in the process, it's a lot of what he is clearing away and restructuring and setting that actually sets up for some of the greatest. Um, movements that we're going to see uh, within the philosophical and theological realms uh, with scholasticism for the coming uh, three, four hundred years. Yeah, if you'd never had William, um, you wouldn't have had Lanfranc at Canterbury. Right. If you didn't have Lanfranc, then you wouldn't have had Anselm uh, following his great mentor. That wouldn't have taken place. Probably all things remain in equal. If you didn't have, you know, this father of scholasticism uh, promoting the idea that you can actually reason and think about the Christian faith and come to arguments that defend and define what it is that you believe and who God is and what salvation is and, and you know, a, a kind of... Uh, more developed theory of the atonement, things like this, then without scholasticism, without those debates, would you then have had biblical humanism and the rise of Erasmus and a return to the mm -hmm. text? And, and then, you know, when would a reformation have taken place? Um, at the same time, would it have been delayed a, a different form? It, it, it just shows that you know, God is at work through all these events bringing about uh, his plan, even when it's so difficult, maybe especially at the time, to discern exactly what it is that he's doing. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, as we say, you know, it is his, his story. Um, it, it's God at work through these events, even through an, an, an incredibly ruthless individual like William. So when we think through significant events in history that we look at these individuals like William who maybe aren't always um, 
seen as in pos- as in positive light, sometimes it is helpful to begin to look around the edges to see what God is up to in the midst of even those what may appear to be fairly dark hours. Yeah, it, you know, William, um, it is viewed and represented as as ruthless. Um, uh, you know. It, he does something in England called the harrying of the North. You have uprisings and rebellions and uh, probably 100,000 in the area that I'm from um, starved to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them become cannibals. It, it, it's horrific what he does. And, of course, it, it, it's all to consolidate his power, uh, to frighten people and, and for his reign. But... Uh, uh, as a, a pious individual, you know, he sets out ideas too um, about uh, the Pope not being uh, recognized uh, in his kingdom, mm. that it, it's the church in England uh, which is to be central. Of course, you've got the king as head of it, mm-hmm. and, and things are going to develop under people like Henry and others. But you know, in time, you're going to have a Protestant church of England, and I believe the seeds are even being sown with people like William, who are distancing the Pope from control in England. Uh, he says that, you know, priests uh, must be celibate now from his point, that they should give their whole attention to the church and to the ministry. Um, if you're married, then uh, it, you can kind of be grandfathered in, but all new priests have to be swear, you know, have to swear that to be celibate. Um, it, it, these are changes at the kind of fringe of things, but are going to change what the future of the church in Britain will be. Well, and with that, listener, you may have a different understanding of William the First and his role to play even within the changes that are going to come uh, within the Middle Ages for the life of the church. So thank you so much, listener, for joining us this week in church history. We will see you next week.